And welcome to Deus Life, an aspirational podcast. I am Patrick, and here with me, as always, is Hayden. And today we have a dear friend on the show, Paul Mello. Welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. Good morning. Um, I suppose we should acknowledge that we did this episode uh, previously, <laughs> but the audio quality didn't quite turn out. This was our first remote recording when we did this before. And uh, since then, I've upgraded my audio engineering skills. But, and um, we have very high standards, so we wanted to make sure that we were only putting out the best in, uh, in yeah, buttery, buttery sound waves. Buttery voice content. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to do... Yeah, I didn't want to do Paul a disservice. Yeah. So welcome to the butter hour. <laughs> there we go. Well, awesome. Paul, you mentioned that you had memorized your script from the last episode. So I guess we'll just start with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll just turn our mics off and let you like, <laughs> like, let, let, let you read all three all three parts for the, yeah, for the next hour. It'll, it'll be like all television now that's not nearly as funny because there's no laugh tracks anymore. Yeah. So oh, perfect. It's just, it's just people doing monologues to a camera and then silence. Yeah, you hear like I, uh, the cameraman laugh or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I hope they liked that. Yeah. Yeah. We now realize Bill Maher is not that funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I think most Bill Maher viewers just fast forward to the hot take at the end. That's that's exactly. what I do. Yeah, the hot takes are still good, but you know I don't really need to see the first fifty-five minutes. No, it's all on YouTube. You just watch new rules and then call it a day. Yeah. Yeah, we call it a day. Yeah, yeah, I can get through a whole season in an hour. Well, uh, I, I guess we'll start with uh, just sort of your origin story, Paul. Um, I know you grew up on the Picton Farm. Is that correct? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> One person got that joke. I didn't. <laughs> much I, like a I, much I, I like a not. monologue, I television did. monologue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. <laughs> 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 what's the Picton Farm? Do you not Paul know? Can, Paul will explain the Picton Farm. <laughs> I mean, no, yeah, no, I mean, it's a horrible. You know, it's funny. That, well, let me take that back. It's not funny, but where <laughs> but, I'm uh, from, yeah. so southwestern Ontario, actually has a ton of horrible stories about different types of uh, murders and mass murder, and you we do, don't cover yeah. it. Yeah, we don't cover it in the same way. Like I was, I'll never forget in high school one day. I was, I don't know, this is maybe grade 11 or 12, and we're just sitting in class one day, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of commotion outside the school, and you see all these police cars, and a couple of plainclothes officers just walk into our classroom and proceed to arrest this guy named Jason Kofel, oh, who man. was, in like hindsight... In, like in your classroom? Like in sitting, the classroom. Like sitting a couple sitting, desks away from you? Yes. And we're all like, what's going on? Because like, it's not something you see at all in a small town. And, but in hindsight, so Jason Kofel was the guy that looked 30, you know, when he was 17 <laughs> and he had a mustache yeah. and he wore those weird aviator glasses that tinted in, you know, sunlight and yeah. big belt buckles. And he would always carry a briefcase. So in yeah. hindsight, of course. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there were yeah. signs. <laughs> it's like the kid that drove to middle school. It's always that kid. <laughs> yeah. And so he killed three people. Ooh, and, no way. and what it was, so I was teaching martial arts at the time and a few of my friends had joined my club. And so it, it was a unique situation to be like 15, 16, 17 years old teaching your friends the same age, but they call you sir because you're the instructor. Yeah, and so funny. a friend of one of my friends joined as well. He brought him, he's like, you know, you're going to love this, come join it. And so he joined and he was still a white belt and he had been with us for about a year, but he... I, I got the whole story from him. So he was friends with the Jason Kofel guy and two other guys. And Kofel was uh, one of these guys that was already militia minded when he was like a, a preteen. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know his whole his origin story, and if like he's got the vibe of growing up in a trailer and like all of that kind of thing. But yeah. um, the fact that he looked thirty, had a mustache, wore aviators that tinted in you know in light, had big shiny belt buckles, and carried a briefcase in high school says a lot. Um, That's enough. So, yeah, he came up with a scheme to rob the local gun store. And so he pitched this idea to this group of guys. One of the guys happened to be one of my students, and uh, they were planning to steal from a gun store. So a couple of the guys got cold feet. And so my student, whose name was Mark, was like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. And like he didn't go hang out with them at all for the next few weeks because they would meet probably have like a dungeon dragons night or something like that on a weekly basis <laughs> where they came up with their crazy schemes and brilliant so ideas of, like robbing it, the most defensible store on the planet. exactly <laughs> that's where the darwin awards come yeah. from where you get yeah. yeah listen we don't have any guns let's go steal some guns from a gun store <laughs> yeah. this is gonna go really well um, let's so uh, we're gonna we're gonna rob mcgregor unarmed <laughs> <laughs> exactly and so this one kid i don't know his name he kind of went along with it for a while then had cold feet so Kofel decided that that wasn't cool. So he went, this kid apparently lived with his grandparents on the edge of town. And so unfortunately, like the whole setting for all of this, I'm surprised there wasn't a, a movie the week made about this, but mm-hmm. it's all cinematic. It was like a house out on like a big uh, empty lot on the edge of town across from like the shadiest train tracks in town kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Kofel went there to kill him. His grandparents were there. The kid ran from the house across the road out into the fields Kofel proceeded to kill his grandparents, chased the kid uh, out into the field, caught him at this horrible creek under the bridge there, like by the train tracks. And I, I won't go into detail, but like brutally murdered this kid. And this and then, is uh, Paul's hometown. Yeah. And then went to school on Monday. <laughs> like nothing happened. Oh my happened. God. <laughs> that's the craziest <laughs> part. Th- that's the craziest he part. He just showed up at school. He went, wow. he went to school like nothing happened. Oh and, my um, God. Yeah, and so I, I guess it didn't take very long because there was three or four people involved in yeah. the scheme for the police to piece it all together. Wow. And so, yeah, he, they just came and arrested him from class. Crazy thing is, so my best friend is a correctional officer. His mother was a, a correctional officer, so she was a jail guard mm-hmm. at our local jail and where they had to hold him before trial and all that stuff. So she got to know, not know him, but like know his world pretty well. And see his visitors. His girl, his high school girlfriend, continued to be his high school girlfriend, which Jesus. is which is just as crazy. And then um, he ended up getting sentenced to, to something like twenty five years. I don't know what it was. So he did his twenty five years, and a few years ago, uh, the news came out that he was being released, yeah, and they were protecting. Yeah, they were protecting Uh-oh. his identity. Here is a crazy thing. He, I don't know how it works, but they get money, you know, while they're in jail for doing whatever medial tasks that they do there. Yeah. So they get some sort of payment at the end of it all. And so he was opening up some like cheesy jewelry shop with his girlfriend, you know, like where they make like those big fat leather bracelets with crappy stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably goes with his belt buckles, but yeah, they were protecting <laughs> his identity. He was being released with a you know new name and he's now living in that town again, a free man Ooh. running. He's, some, ba- he's, ba- he's back in the same town, same town. Wow. This is scary. This yeah. is a great introduction to your hometown, Paul. I know. Well, you know. It's funny. I was at a dinner party last night telling stories about L.A., funny enough. 
<laughs> a few of us had, there was a friend of a friend that had lived in LA for five years and she was telling LA stories. So and then, you're definitely going to have LA stories then. <laughs> oh no. They were like, it's they, a city they, of stories. Were, I'll tell you know, what's funny is after the last, after our last or our first attempt at the, the podcast, mm-hmm. I was sitting down one day and I was, something we had talked about rang a bell for me and I was like, Oh, and I started kind of going back into my LA kind of yeah, recollection yeah, yeah. and yeah, right. I, I just jotted down a whole bunch of things that i hadn't thought about for like 20 something years because it's been so long from the first time i lived there but i was telling some of these stories last night at dinner and they're kind of mind-blowing i'll tell you a couple of them but yeah mm-hmm. we were all sharing la stories because there was a couple people at the dinner party who had never been and uh didn't like they were kind of like on the outside of all of our banter because we were all in la like this oh, i used to go to equinox and the guy had hit on me and like you know telling all the <laughs> these quintessential la yeah. uh, experience stories or like being somewhere where there's a celebrity sitting next to you and all that kind of stuff um but my stories were more about like my first time living there in my early 20s being broke and having the time of my life because i lived there twice once broke and then once with money and mm. broke was 10 times better than having money <laughs> simply because well, it makes you more relatable to your friends. Well, no, no I, my friends are real. My yeah. friends are real because I had nothing to offer. I That's didn't have a, a great car. point. I've always wondered that about like famous and or rich people. It's like, it kind of ruins your ability to make genuine connections. It's not like, gen- Yeah. Everything has everybody an agenda. wants something from you. Yeah. Everybody wants something. Yeah. So it was really, I didn't realize it until the second time I lived there. And the second time I lived there, I was working it's funny, I was working in film in Toronto. And I didn't go to LA the first time to be in film. It just funny it just happened that way. Mm-hmm. Living in Toronto working in film. And then the girlfriend I had at the time was studying makeup in uh Toluca Lake. So there's a makeup school there. And so I would fly back. So I had an apartment in LA with her, and then I had my apartment in Toronto, and I'd fly back and forth. Sounds really like, wow, that's amazing. No, it was like I had a shitty apartment in Toronto, and I had a shitty apartment <laughs> in LA. It was shitty like, flights in between. <laughs> yeah, shitty flights, and like, you know, <laughs> shitty rental car. And, yeah. um, and like we lived in one of those two story, you know, U shaped apartment complexes with a pool in the center in Toluca yeah. Lake, kind of by, yeah. you know, big boy out there in Burbank and mm-hmm. um big boys drive through whatever it's called and I think, they, I, th- I think they've changed the name or they're rebranding it because of no. uh, yeah because you don't rebrand same. that yeah wait why what would they change it to I I, I don't know there I, I remember seeing a newspaper a news article where it was like similar in line to like the rebrand of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's rice they also did the Bob what's like, wrong with big boy it, if you look it up it's like it's a small, got a bad curly, track record. white boy. I don't, I don't know anything about Big Boy I, except I, I Austin remember, Powers. I remember there was. Some, or, <laughs> it looks like the Bob's Big Boy, sir. <laughs> exactly. That's too funny. Well, it's funny because it, it's it's one of those. Th- hey, listen, we live in a weird time where who knows what origin that has. And yeah, I guess big I'll have boy, to look it up. <laughs> yeah, Big Boy could have been like a slave master. Who knows? Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. nobody knows anymore. But yeah, so anyways, we had a place kind of just back behind there. And I was the only one that would ever use the pool because it's like kind of a lower income type of uh, apartment building. And so people were out working all day, like probably going to three jobs. Mm-hmm. And I was just there three or four days at a time, fly back, work, fly back kind of thing. Um, but yeah, not at all uh, extravagant or fancy, but that experience gave me a different perspective on my first experience. Like I realized how amazing my first experience was because 
I couldn't do anything for anyone. I had no car. I, I had no influence. I had no connections. I was a Canadian kid that went there for a month, stayed for a year. And the second time I was in the film business, my credit card had my film company's name on it. And so mm. when I'd go pay for like food at a restaurant and they'd see my card, I'd have a ton of, you know, really unpleasant interactions with wannabe actors seeing that oh, I was because all of the restaurant staff wants you to help them in some what way. Kind of, what kind of table side pitches did you get when you, when you went to pay? Well, it was, it was always exactly the same thing. So you're just an average guy, you know, you're not recognizable, you eat your food and then, you know, you're like, can I get the bill? And they come over with the bill and then you, you know, you tuck your credit card in that little plastic sleeve at the top and then they come over and they walk away and you see them over at like the waitress station. And then mm-hmm. you see them look at it and then look over back at you. <laughs> and then they come over, they're like, hey, I see that you're, you know, in the film business. And I've been it's like and just, Goodfellas meets Wally. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And they, they they just launch into like they they tell you what they're there for. You know, I just yeah. moved here from Wisconsin. I, you know, I'm trying to find an agent, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, can't help you. I'm like, I'm a location manager. I'm not gonna <laughs> unless you want to rent me your apartment for a shoot, there's not much I can do for you. And and it just, you know, young people that have been there a short period of time that didn't understand that people from all different departments in the film business can have a film production name on their card. Or it could like yeah. it happened to be my company, but it could have been, you know, the company's card that I have because I'm there scouting for two days. Like there's just a million possible you know variations of what that could be but their perspective is very narrow they're like they want to be an actor and they see someone in the business and any opportunity and this is the kind of the core essence of la you're Mm -hmm. always looking for any opportunity that comes your way everyone we were all trying to get an understanding of like what is it about la that's like attractive at the same time repels you and it's like well it's it's that feeling that at any moment you could have an interaction that could be a grand opportunity yeah, and unfortunately, like that's that alluring, I'm going to make it thing, right? Yeah, Even though or, the odds of you making it are shoved in your face every day. Every day. Like, and every time you have any kind of brush with fame, like seeing somebody at a cafe or, mm-hmm. or oh, so-and-so, no, so-and-so. You, Everybody knows sudden, someone, yeah. Yeah, it, it, like, it rekindles that kind of spark in you. We're like, oh, that, this could be it. You know, and, and I think the longer people, like aspiring actors especially – are there and you know you're constantly hoping for that connection of some type and it it just gets a little bit more desperate as time goes on yeah it's sort of um i learned that from the music industry too i imagine it's the same in 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 film and television is basically like everybody you meet knows someone who was the bass player in some band or totally. uh, produced some record or I was the guitarist in Freddie Mercury's side project. Like, mm-hmm. every, and now I'm producing the new Aguilera re- like single. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody knows somebody. Yeah. Yeah. And none totally. of them are going to help you. <laughs> no. And the funny thing is, is, um, the woman, like the friend whose house we were at, we were celebrating her birthday and she's, she worked for a film studio here in Vancouver and she would go there every two weeks to like have meetings and try to entice productions to come to Vancouver to shoot. Cause there's all kinds of tax benefits and, and she can negotiate rates on studio space and all this kind of stuff. And it's a, it's a crucial role. Like you, you, it's crucial to mm-hmm. the local economy. It's crucial to their actual business and it's crucial to the industry. Cause those are like high level relationships where you're actually going there doing business. And you know, she loved LA and we all had like an affinity for LA. I still love LA, but she also was like, her experience was very unique because she went in 
from the beginning out of the gate in the business side of things and quickly realized how um, business based every relationship is like if they don't want to do that deal with you you don't have a relationship when you walk away from that meeting whereas Mm -hmm. i think other industries or other cities you might still like i've had meetings with people where it was either for a freelance project and i've even had talks with people about taking a role at a company and you end up hitting it off with someone and even though the the thing doesn't pan out you stay Mm -hmm. in touch because mm-hmm. you've just kind of hit it off. And that's something that's very kind of Canadian and small town in a way. But LA kind of doesn't have that. I don't have many stories about that <laughs> happening <laughs> when I was there. I was like just yeah. bumping into someone and hitting it off. And maybe they are connected. But the funny thing was I wasn't there to be an actor. I wasn't there to be in the business. So it, it was kind of a great base for st- having authentic relationships because I didn't yeah. want anything from anyone. And I did have friends that were you know, beginning their careers in acting. And like, I had a friend that did a couple of CW shows. So we would go to Warner Brothers studio and like sit in a studio audience and watch. And, and he had friends. I remember once he came to my place, picked me up because we were going to go to whatever that mall is over on Pico West something. Oh, yeah, West Side Pavilion. West Side Pavilion. Yeah. He's like, he wanted to go there for something and we get to the mall and he bumps into Kim Wayans. Mm. And they're just chit chatting mm. and stuff, and they used to DJ or something together. And we're all, and then we're all sitting there in the food court with Kim Wayans, and she's telling us stories about like. And I'm just like, this is very normal, you know? Mm. What I mean? Like, like yeah. this wasn't like a, it wasn't like oh, like, there was no air of anything. Like I knew who she was. I used to watch in Living Color. I love in Living Color. Um, mm. So I'm very aware. But it was just very like if I bumped into somebody here in Vancouver at the grocery store and we sat down and have Starbucks, you know, like it, there was no air about it. And I think yeah. there's a lot of that as well. And I think once you've spent a, a degree of time and had any kind of degree of real connection with people that are actually doing something in the business, you quickly realize how they're just normal people. And I say this all the time. I might have said this in our, our last call. I'm four, I'll be 47 in a couple months. And by this point in your life, when you're in your 40s, you've met people from every walk of life and every, dem- mm-hmm. every demographic and every level of success and failure. And none of it really impresses you anymore. And you're, you get so busy with whatever your life is that you're no longer pining for anyone to give you the foot in the door. Like if, yeah. if you've, if you're looking for a foot in the door at 47, <laughs> you've got bigger problems than wanting to be an actor. And yeah, it makes uh, you just be able to settle down and have conversations oh, with people. And, and yeah, it's very, it, be it, 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 it becomes about people. And then you even have like this freedom of like, unless I got into it early. So I, you know, I've been at the table with, you know, people with names, and it didn't impress me then. Now, as a you know, a grown man and a father, it impresses me even less. And funny enough, now you know, entering the le- the last part of 2020 after the craziness of this year, mm-hmm. it impresses me infinitely less. Like I could care. Like uh, if anyone doesn't sit here right now and go, you know what, celebrity is probably the least interesting thing <laughs> in the world right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like who gives a shit? Like, the only interesting aspect of it is how you can use it to promote things. <laughs> like, yeah, and even that's, that's all lost. that matters. Like, yeah, even like, that's lost yeah. at Sheen. Like, it's it's nobody wants to hear from celebrities right now. There's too many crazy yeah. things going on in the world that and nobody too wants. Many famous people. <laughs> yeah, too many, like, I'll give you an example. Everyone's uh, fucking famous. Yeah, yeah. The Dave Chappelle uh, bit that he did about George Floyd. You know that little special mm-hmm. that he put out. I yeah. love Dave Chappelle like everyone else does. Like I, mm-hmm. I, 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 one of my favorite things I've ever seen Chappelle do was ride with um, the guy from. There's a guy from Walking Dead, Norman Reedus. 
So he's got a show called Ride where he goes on motorcycle rides with other famous people. And that he did one like with, something you would definitely watch, Paul. Yeah, and he did an episode <laughs> with Dave Chappelle because Dave Chappelle rides a motorcycle. And so they rode yeah. through the South. And it was actually really interesting because they stopped at a plantation to eat and the owners gave them kind of this history lesson and like why their food is what it is. And that that's a, a really big region for growing rice. And that's how a lot of people of color after slavery made money because they were given reparations in the form of farms and land and they farmed it and farmed rice and and like mm-hmm. how many people know that people of color are in the the south cooking making rice and farming rice mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's it was really interesting and, and Chappelle had this very down-to-earth uh appeal to him in the show and it wasn't about him being a comedian but they're actually friends and real, like I, I like Chappelle a lot and he mm-hmm. is a celebrity I've been, he, he does this thing, you know, about George Floyd recently in, in the heat of everything going on in the world. And I was just like, yeah, he opened with saying, you know, nobody wants to hear what celebrities think. Cause he talked about why people were like pressuring yeah, him to say something. I'm remembering the special now. Yeah. 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 And, he, and, he, and he's like, I didn't say anything for a long time. And he goes, cause, cause no one gives a fuck what celebrities think. And, I, and <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting there going, but you're on Netflix right now. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. like, what are you talking? You Very can't, meta. <laughs> yeah. You can't open up with no one gives a shit what celebrities think and then do a special specifically about what you think about this situation. Now, and, is it different for him because he's a celebrity because of what he thinks? Hmm. That's an interesting point. Because that's what made him a celebrity, right? Is thinking and talking? Mm, no. What made him famous was his show. And that yeah. was not at all cerebral or intellectual in any way. It was funny as hell. Mm-hmm. And it was a great, unique perspective of culture because he, but it, it was pop culture. Like, and it was it like a new format too. I feel like that yeah. whole format of like intersplicing the stand up with the bits and like, that became really popular. That's like yeah. a model that everybody follows now. Totally. And, like, and I know he been, says, Key and Peel are doing great with my show. <laughs> yeah, totally. I know. And, and like, he's a genius. And I yeah. love his perspective yeah. on a lot of things. Yeah. But he's not like a, uh, Bill Hicks or Mitch Hedberg, you know, he's not that kind of guy that really digs into like biting, biting social commentary, I guess. Yeah. No, no, it's no, not really. And he he himself says that, you know, he kind of doesn't, he doesn't jump on it quickly. Like people like, you know, like a Louis CK or other sort of cerebral comics will jump on those things right away and Mm -hmm. find a really intellectual way of, of, you know, pulling it apart, but not Dave. And so after that special, I didn't see him the same because I was like, it's just another reminder of like, yeah, you're right. I don't want to hear a celebrity's take on anything because <laughs> you do, you too live in a bubble. Like you get, you get to put on a show out in the yeah. field somewhere with your own money. And then Netflix is going to throw a couple million bucks at you to, you know, to put it on Netflix. So it, it's that thing that bugs us about celebrities is like when they come out and, you know, virtue signal about something that's bothering them, but then they're in their compound getting delivered you know the best food in the world and like none of them are struggling through what's going on in the world yeah and and like you know look at what's happening on the west coast with all these fires and i remember a couple years ago when there was the wildfires and malibu was going to burn and i have to look i have to watch on the news Yeah, every year the whole city's going to burn (laughs) actually like twice a year i'd say twice a year we're in this thing where everybody's like is this the time yeah. Oh, it's every year. And, and like we got to normal people got to watch on the news as they go, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my house. Wh- which house? Your fourth house or your third house? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm supposed to give a they're, shit. They're tu- it's their Tuesday house. Yeah. yeah. yeah Tuesday. Like, like, <laughs> seriously, I'm, I'm, we're supposed to give a shit that your house. And the worst was like Ellen when her area, she's up in Montecito, was 
close to burning. And she's on her show pleading with people for donations to help them. I'm like, excuse me, $40 million a year, lady. Wait, really? They were asking Why for donations? Don't you? Oh my gosh. Yeah. At the end of every show, it's like, you know, do what you can to support. And like, you know, she's like bleeding hard on television about, I'm sorry. Too many things have happened in this year for us to give a flying fuck about what's going on in your bubble. You can Mm. pick up and go anywhere you want at any time you want. The the people that that make 30 grand a year can't. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like there's a lot of curses of being famous uh, aside from just like ruining your ability to relate to people. But it's like when when people say famous people are crazy or something, or like Kanye West is a good example. Like, I, I don't know how you could not go crazy. Like, actually, LeBron, for this, like, LeBron amazes me for many reasons, but one of the most amazing things LeBron has ever done is he's been like the most famous person in the world for like over 20 years. <laughs> like it's, it's an outrageous thing for someone to, like nobody has ever experienced what LeBron has experienced. He was, like, like, he was on the cover of sports illustrated as a high school well, junior. He was like 16 or something. Yes. Like no one has ever experienced this. Not Michael Jordan. Cause there was, he did it during social media. Like no one has ever been this famous before mm-hmm. and had this much pressure and this much scrutiny and this much criticism. And yet, he seems so relatable. Like he just does everything well. He does the game well. He does the post game conference better than everybody. He like, I, he's keto. <laughs> he gave Blaze Pizza keto crust. <laughs> like, what can't this man fucking do? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the winning virtue that you, you yeah. like there, put him at the top, top of his resume he brought the keto crust to yeah. he's in space jam too it should come out that he's one of the aliens because this man all, is not human like, all of his accomplishments didn't sit until he went keto, keto. and patrick's like okay i get it now all right that's this man knows what he's that's doing <laughs> blaze pizza has keto crust i'm in yeah uh, LeBron changed my world man what, he, he built schools uh whatever he's got he keto crust at the school now yep yeah i mean like here is a man who literally the only knock against him is his decision conference which generated millions for charity like what are we talking about i know it's so crazy so it's like you can have somebody like that that just amazes me because i feel like if you sat down with lebron james you would have like a you would feel like you were talking to like a real person right Mm -hmm. But yep. I can't think of many people that famous who you would ever feel like that. It should just ruin you. Like it should just make you a totally unrelatable person who can only relate to like the three other people who are that famous. Yeah, yeah and well, you, here, you surround yourself the, by yes people too. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, but I, I think he's unique also in another sense where when he was getting all that all the attention as a high schooler, he was already being prepped and groomed for success. And if you go if, if you go back, say, 15 more years where athletes didn't have any guidance, like it was around that time that like leagues like the NFL started bringing in financial coaches for players because so many yeah. players had ended up bankrupt and broke. Yeah. And so there was a, a shift in the culture, probably because of Jordan, that started to prepare um, athletes across all sports for the success. And this even happened in the lottery world. Like in the lottery world, they didn't always have psychologists that would meet with lottery winners. Now they mm-hmm. do. Like the first thing that happens if you win a lottery is you have to sit down with their psychologist and they walk you through, you know, what's about to happen to your life because it ruins most people. 
So is there's a, a lot. Can- of- is, wait, is that a Canadian thing? I feel like I feel like the California lottery is not that forward thinking. <laughs> Here you go, good luck. Here you well, go. It, yeah, it here's may- your tax bill. You yeah. want it all at once, sir, and weekly and stuff. You want and a life changing a- amount of money every year yeah. or right and, now? <laughs> and here's a free ticket to Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. They want to keep the money in the California economy, Paul. Exactly, They're going yeah. to, pro- going to Pachanga, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it is a North American thing, but it could be a Canadian thing. But yeah, you, you actually have to sit down with a psychologist and, and go through like the psychology of like how your relationships are about to change and how you're – because if you, just, if you win $20 million you know, overnight and you make fifty grand a year, you're going to make some shitty decisions. Yeah, and you're going like, to be taken like, advantage of for sure. Yeah, like you're you're going to have family come out of the woodwork, and like this is just part of human nature. Like, there's you're going to hear from cousins. Listen, this happened to me when I went to L.A. that first time. I was a kid from a small town that went to L.A., and so all my hometown friends. I remember when I came home at Christmas time to visit my family, and I was in my hometown. I went into my hometown mall. And I'm coming up the escalator and I see a guy from high school and he like does that thing where he's going down, I'm going up and he gets back on the up to follow me up. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I'm at the top. Like Groundhog like, Day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, Paul, Paul. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, how you doing? And funny enough, his name is Rich. <laughs> and, and I'm like, hey, Rich. He's like, man, Mr. Hollywood. I'm like, oh, fuck, here we go. And, and I'm like, I, I didn't you work really in film in from LA. A small town. <laughs> yeah, I, I was like a beach bum. Like I, 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 I had no money. I was like flat broke in LA the first time. I wasn't in the business. Like, but it, the, the simple fact that I was in LA for a year and word got around, people assumed that I was like somehow, you know, having dinner with Pacino every night. And and he like goes in and like the amount of pressure that was applied, like the expectation that I was somehow exalted now. Because I had gone to, yeah, and I was just like, it was very strange because it's it's almost like, um, I don't know how to explain it. It's like if you rent your home and your neighbor assumes that you bought it, and like they come up like, oh, you're gonna do any rentals, house things, and like right out of the gate, they've already applied the assumption on you, and so you just don't correct them, you know, (laughs) you you just like, yeah, because you're like whatever. And then like it goes on and on and on, and they're like, "Oh, how's it going with your tenants?" And you're like, "Ah, oh, yeah, that's fine," <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like because you don't owe them any kind of transparency, right? Like, yeah. I don't need to explain anything to anyone. But mm-hmm. this is the same experience I'm having with this high school friend. I'm like, "Do I have to sit? Do I have to sit there and break down for him how broke I was, and that I was living in an apartment with no furniture and sleeping on the floor, and like that I ate croissants?" three times a day because my roommate worked at a bakery and would bring home croissants for us to eat. Like, like, do I have to, every time I bump into someone now, you know, quantify Correct. my like, lack no, of money? No, it's not as great. Yeah, take <laughs> yeah. the luster off of me. Yeah. Nah, yeah. Just tell him Pacino says hi. Exactly, yeah. And listen, <laughs> I have, I had lots of cool stories. Like I was telling them last night, like 25 years later, I was telling these stories about my experience there, but they're not those stories. They're not like sipping champagne stories. They're more like holy shit stories. Like, that's a crazy experience because LA mm. is a very unique place that things happen in a place like that, like in New York that don't happen in a small town in Southwestern Ontario. So there is a, a, a different experience that you're going to have for sure. And you are in a different environment that's going to introduce, like I went to a house party in my first month there and someone's like, Oh yeah, there's another party next door. And I'm like, oh, well, let's walk over there. Like, oh, we can, it's Johnny Depp's house. And we're like, Oh, <laughs> And we're like, let's try anyway. <laughs> like that doesn't happen in Chatham, Ontario. He'll scissor hands you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's there's a there's just a different thing. Like there's just more of everything there, 
And yeah. there's more opportunity, not in terms of career, but just more opportunity for unique experiences. And I like all, my whole experience that first year was just a whole bunch of unique experiences because I'm in a completely different place. I'm in a cosmopolitan city, one of the most famous cities in the world. Of course, it's going to be a different experience. And of course, people's assumptions from a small town are going to be, you know, way out of out of uh, context and like they're not going to understand what hollywood even is like they don't understand what nobody knows what hollywood really is until they go there and go oh, oh. yeah <laughs> well, it's not my shoe <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah, <laughs> the this, best this is, representation of hollywood itself Ugh, why, oh my I, god the, the ground is so sticky god <laughs> exactly so yeah people don't really have a picture because media doesn't really show it like how many movies have really shown hollywood for what it is uh, maybe swingers, <laughs> a certain type. No, no, not even. You know what's funny? At the dinner party last night, what, the the it's like the valley more. <laughs> yeah, one of the people at the table, you know, the husband of one of the of our friends, brought up. He's like, I think the best example is swingers, and we we're all like, nope. <laughs> it, it, like, I, I think it captured like a certain vibe, period, and vibe and type of yeah. person. It, it long before I lived, but yeah, yeah, yeah it captured like that a certain type of LA in a certain time period. Well, I think, well, and I was there at that time period. That was my time period that first time. Yeah. And so, you know, I was there, I went to the Dresden room. I, like I, I did mm -hmm. all those things. I went to those places. It, you know, it's I, the scene where they go to the crowded bar and they, they, they finally get in and they like say hi to their friends. There's all yeah. these people. And it looks like it's like the quintessential party that everybody want to be at. And as soon as they get there, they go, man, this place is dead. Let's go somewhere yeah, else. Let's go and they just do yeah. that three times. <laughs> that, I think that was super clever. Like that, well, that's very accurate. And the best was that scene where, you know, talk to the girl. It's like, so what do you drive? You know, and it's like, <laughs> that, that happened to me. Uh, uh, that party next door to Johnny Depp's house, I'm standing in like a little stairway. And this girl's like, hey, so where are you from? And I'm like, I, I came here from Toronto. She's like, oh, wow. She's like, what do you drive? And I was like, and I, sw I swear on my life, my answer was the blue bus. Because I take the blue bus oh, for awesome. fifty cents from from Santa Monica up all the way Santa Monica Boulevard so to funny. get here, and it was like, and she literally turned around and walked away, and I wasn't trying to be funny. I was just like, the blue bus, <laughs> I take the blue bus here, <laughs> the vomit rocket, she, whatever they call it. She probably thought um, you were trolling her, but you were just being genuine. No, yeah, and here's a, listen. I was a kid from a small town, totally naive and totally genuine, which doesn't play well in that scene. Like it's, it's all posers. Like, yeah, well, it's all posers. There's, there's, it's not all posers, but there's a lot of posing and posturing that goes on because we're oh, this, this, is, this is the land where optics matter. And uh, and I think to, to your guys' point, part of the reason why there isn't a movie that sort of takes away the luster of Hollywood is that they the entire industry is sort of built upon that. Completely, it's a complete fabrication of like for instance my my wife's been watching selling sunset yeah, yeah, yeah. i was so I, disappointed I by that show because everybody hyped it up and i thought i would just look at some pretty houses and then it was just like a reality show it's from it's the real housewives it, of selling real estate in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> and it's funny because i would go to sunset quite a bit because i love mel's diner mm, and that, i had a that, few that place real is awesome it's right down from the comedy store yeah and is i, I like, love exactly what's up the yeah, and, so yeah yeah my roommate in that first year living in LA, you know, he was this kid from Philadelphia and I had been there a few months already. And I told the story last night at dinner. So uh, I'm staying at the Santa Monica hostel, which if you've never seen it, it's kind of like a, a hotel. It's not like a typical hostel. Maybe it is now, but at the time it was pretty new. You know, you could have your own private room and it was very modern and nice, had a lobby and all this stuff. And so I ended up staying there for quite a while. 
And so I got to know a lot of people and like, so I'm sitting at a table one day in like the cafeteria and like, you know, it's like five or six people from all different places in the world and we're just chatting. And I see this kid come walking in the cafeteria to go to the payphone when payphones still were a thing. And this kid is, is like a grown up version of the kid from Jerry Maguire. So he's like a, the 20 year old Jonathan Lipnicki mm-hmm. <laughs> with the spiky blonde hair and the glasses and the slight lisp. And, and he goes to a payphone and we're all sitting there talking and all of us like overhear his conversation and he's crying into the phone to his mother. And he's like, I'm coming home. I got lost in Compton. I thought I was going to die. And he's like, I can't, I can't do this. I'm coming back. And like gets off the phone call and he's like still kind of wiping the tears from his eyes. He's walks by our table. I'm like, Hey, come here for a sec. And he's like, what? I'm like, listen, I don't know you, but I, we heard your phone call. All I can say to you is if you really want to be an actor, you got to give it more than three days. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm like, just, you, you got to give it more than three you days. You got this, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah. And so he sat with us and we all started talking and I just kind of told him, like, obviously I've got like this ability to like be mentor-like sometimes and kind of mm-hmm. take over the conversation. And and I just kind of gave him a talk. I'm like, listen, I didn't come here to be an actor, but I've been here, I came for a month and I'm now going on my second or third month, whatever it is. And I'm like, you need to like give it more time. You can't go back to Philadelphia three days in because you got lost in East LA trying to find an apartment. Like you've got to, <laughs> you got to stick to it. So him and I ended up becoming best friends and, and I ended up staying with a friend and she went back to, she did the same thing. She gave up LA and went back to Boston to see her boyfriend. And she left me her apartment for as long as the rent would last. So I had like a month and a half left nice. of her rent. That so like, the, the, yeah, that's nice. Well, you know, it's funny cause I was staying with her cause you can only stay in the hostel for so long. And so she let me come stay with her in the studio apartment. And, um, I come, I'm out one day, doing whatever. And I come walking back and she's parked behind the apartment building at the, like the patio door and she's loading the car with all of her stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh my God. Cause I, I was it, for it a moment. Good. I was like, totally. Yeah. I was, no, I was selfish. I was like, Oh my God, what about me? <laughs> Cause I was like, I didn't have anywhere to go. You and, have a dependent. And, Don't leave. <laughs> uh, totally. And I'm like, Tara, what's going on? She's like crying. She's like, I miss my boyfriend. I'm going back to Boston. And I'm like, uh okay and she's like you can have the apartment the rent's paid until like whatever september whatever it was she said you can stay and i'm like all of a sudden i have like this sense of relief i'm like okay (laughs) i'm like (laughs) i got a place i got a place to stay for like six weeks so she literally packed everything except for her like bombay company day bed because she couldn't fit that in the car and she Mm -hmm. packed up her i think it was a sob and gave me a hug and she's like jumps in her car and she drove all the way back across the country to boston (laughs) and left me her apartment so my first phone call was to my friend Derek, this kid, we called him Philly from Philadelphia. Uh, he was still at the hostel. I said, Derek, I got a place. Like, pack your stuff and come. You can stay with me. So he came and I let him stay in, like, sleep on the day bed. I slept on the floor. And I, I tell the story all the time because, you know, people from where I, where I grew up assumed that I had, like, this very amazing, extravagant, fame-filled experience. And I like the first time, no, I was, like a foot away, like a step away from being homeless at all times. Um, I went with like a month's worth of savings and ended up staying, staying for a year. Couldn't work legally because I didn't prepare to. So I did all these little odd <laughs> you jobs. showed up without citizenship. <laughs> yeah, I just showed up. Without, you jumped like, you know, like hostel hopping. Yeah, hostel hopping and then made a couple friends and a friend let me stay at her place. And, and so this is how the whole LA conversation started because I was telling the story and then I'm like, it was – 
a terrifying experience because the last two weeks of us being in her apartment was every night the super or like the the manager of the complex coming and banging on the door with his fist. I know you're in there. You have to get out of here. I know you're in there. And we're like hiding in the closet or under the mattress because we thought like we were literally going to like physically get, because in the U S evictions are different than Canada. In Canada, you don't get thrown out on your ass. Mm. Like there's a long drawn out process in the U S a sheriff comes (laughs) and is like, pack your shit, get the hell out right now. Have One minute. (laughs) Exactly. And so it was, it was a terrifying thing for like two, three weeks of like every day, someone pounding on the door and like every day we'd come home, we'd come in through the back patio door. So we wouldn't have to like go through common areas. And, um, I slept on the floor on a towel. Like I I bought a towel the first week I got there. That towel was my bed, my pillow, my ironing board, my towel, a curtain. Like it was like, I had nothing. Like I, I was broke, like literally broke living in LA. And this and show we'd is sponsored in. by towel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. By Venice beach towels. Towel. Um, and, and it was very, it was an interesting thing. Cause I, I didn't care about it. I wasn't trying to be in the business. I was just living this experience and I was there and having the time of my life. And every day was completely unexpected adventure. And, and, you know, we were two 20 something year old kids fumbling our way through LA. And the one thing I told him was like, cause he came with some savings. And I'm like, you can't spend any of your money. You have to get a job right away and, and just spend that money. Otherwise you're not going to last. Cause I, we ended up getting an apartment, uh, North Sierra Bonita, just off a of rock walk east of Fairfax. And it was right down the street from Samuel French books, which is like the actor's bookstore. And I'd go in there all the time just to sit there and read books because it was a free thing I could do. And every day I'd be in there, I'd see some new schmuck from another town come in there and buy 600 bucks worth of like audition books and monologue books and then head out. And the girl at the desk at the, the clerk would always like be shaking her head. And I was like, what's, why are you shaking your head? She's like, Oh, these people come in every day and they buy all these books and they're not going to be here in two months. <laughs> and it's like yeah. they see this steady stream of like hopefuls right come through Short-term and so rentals. i said to, yeah and i said to derek i'm like you can't be one of those people like like that's not my experience it's just i met enough people in those first few months that had made that mistake of blowing their load in the first month and then having to get that waiter that, that waitressing job or getting a job at the bagel shop or whatever it was just to live and then you're, you you can't go to auditions because you don't have a job that gives you the flexibility to do that yeah. And you just have to work so you can live. And, and so the best thing I did for him was make him get work. So we got a job at a bakery and then he got a job, funny enough, reason why I tell the story, at the comedy store as like the little host guy oh, at the door. Nice. And so it's funny because having that conversation last night, last night with all these friends, everyone has a different experience, like a divergent perspective of a place. And like, I personally don't like Barcelona. I've been three times, never had a good experience. I know friends that think it's the best place on earth. It's just, we have different experiences. Derek had a different experience in LA than I did, you know, and he had a unique experience because he got to know all the comedians because he was the kid at the door. And like just that bubble of his sense of community for sure. Yeah. Completely. And like, and he would also see which you wouldn't think or know if you were just someone coming to see a comedian at the comedy store, you know, he got to see other people struggle that seemed to be doing really well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like you got someone that might be headlining a Friday night at a comedy store and they're living in a shitty studio apartment too. And make a full 15 bucks from that headlining slot, I think. Yeah. So, so like I loved that unique experience of LA because I, you know, I lived behind the curtain the whole time. 
Yes. And I, I, you know, I got to see it for what it was. <clears throat> and again, my friendships were genuine and they were real. And there was always one or two degrees of separation from, you know, that dream success that people have. Like you're always somewhat one or two degrees away from it. Mm-hmm. but <clears throat> you were still having your own experience. And, you know, for Derek, he never became an actor. You know, he did a little bit. He did some, I can't remember what they were called. There were these sessions where you'd go in and with a group of people and there'd be some agents that would come and you would all take turns going up, um, doing like a monologue bit. And he did the monologue from, uh, and I know this cause I rehearsed it with them, the monologue from, um, breakfast club, that Emilio Estevez does where he talks yeah. about why he's in detention and peeling the tape off the kid's ass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You remember that one? Anyways, I got to memorize it too. <laughs> yeah. Because he, he, he bullied a kid and they duct taped his ass cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> no, they duct taped the kid's ass cheeks together. And then, so the whole style came from that, I think. <laughs> totally true. <laughs> but yeah, so he had a unique experience too. And, and I look back on that period of time as like an amazing time in my life because it was all struggle. It was scary as shit. I was like one foot from being homeless at all times in LA. And if it wasn't for my mom sending me money via Western Union once a month, I would have been probably homeless. Um, and having that relationship with that kid from Philly, as much as I helped him, he made it possible for me to continue living there, you know, for a few more months. Yeah. And then I come to to back to Canada to visit family at Christmas and I get in the film business, <laughs> which, <laughs> which was like the most unexpected weird thing to happen. And and it actually fractured my friendship with him huh. because I didn't go back to LA. I was jealous? working in film here. It wasn't jealousy. It was, he felt like, so I have to tell you the story. So <clears throat> in the way that I kept him from leaving and like kind of was there in that weird moment of him about to exit mm-hmm. his dream. And I kind of stopped him and kept him there. And like, he's since, you know, he stayed in LA, became a real estate agent, met his wife, had children, started a family. Yeah, so if, he still lives here. Still lives there, yeah. And so, had I not stopped that funny-looking kid w- after that phone call, his life would have had a different path. And you know, there's that quote: you know, like people come into your life for uh, a, a reason, a season, or a lifetime, or something like that. Um, I guess that was the reason why we, and maybe it was partially a season and a reason, but mm-hmm. he needed to stay in LA for some reason. And so, for some reason, I told the story last night. I think he had this pay it forward thing in the back of his mind. So we were two days into our new apartment. So we left that soon to be eviction <laughs> experience mm-hmm. and we found a place, that place off of sunset is <clears throat> a two bedroom, two bathroom apartment and two days in and we're in Santa Monica at the coffee bean and right at, like on Santa Monica Boulevard, right at second. And we're just sitting there having coffee and this like six foot four, put together black dude comes and sits right next to us. And he's like, throws down his bag. He's like, Oh fuck. And he's like exasperated. And Derek's like, what's wrong, man? He's like, Oh man, I came here to be an actor and I just got the phone with my dad and he cut me off and I don't know where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. And Derek's like, stay with us. Nice. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Whoa, like hold on a second. Slow your roll. Yeah. yeah I'm like, you just meet this I'm guy like, and invite him to stay with you in 30 seconds. <laughs> in 30 seconds. And, and, and I think in the back of his mind, he was like doing what I did for him. But yeah. you know, when I asked him to come stay with me, we had already been friends for like a month or so. And like we had spent every day together and got to know each other. And, and like Derek had there was no threat to Derek. This guy was like a very intimidating 
person. Like he was six foot five. He was big. He had a ton of attitude and he was wearing a Rolex. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, and so anyway, so this guy, Corey comes and stays with us. And so like, again, the only furniture we have in the whole apartment is that Bombay day bed that's uh-huh. in Derek's room. And so Corey now lives in the living room on the floor and I have my room on my towel. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and so we're like three weeks into living together and, and I see this, the early signs of the uh, stress of having someone move in with us, take, take his toll. Cause Derek was kind of a young pushover kid. Like I'm not a pushover obviously. And, uh, to him, Corey was quite of a bully. He, he would like, uh, the example I use is we went to play pool one night and first thing we say is like, you know, loser pays. So we play pool for a couple hours. Corey loses. He just throws his cue on the table. It's like, pay the girl, Derek. And he walks out. Oh, Corey. And yeah, yeah. So I get outside and I'm like, Corey, you can't do that kind of shit. And he's like, he just had this attitude about him. Yeah. And Derek started to feel like, you know, we were suddenly trapped and like stuck with this guy. And, and Corey and I had a different relationship. Corey had done some boxing or something. And because of my martial arts background, we would spar. So like every, I say two or three nights a week, we'd spar kind of like you do, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd spar in the living room and he was a big guy. And like, it would get quite heated because what I had an experience he had in size and like athleticism and physical prowess. Yeah. And so whenever I would start to get the better of him, he would just resort to power yeah and if you've ever fought somebody that's you know three or four weight classes above you strong your way out of anything yeah yeah and like when you're sparring not full sparring with someone and they just you know right cross you full power across the face um you know even when it's a friend it gets quite heated yeah and and so we had a really contentious relationship because i would have to correct them all the time kind of bring them down a notch and as you know patrick there's something very unique about sparring with someone like you mm-hmm. do build a different kind of bond because yeah, you're, you, you have to tr- be pretty good friends if you can do yeah that. you, you yeah. have to trust one another you're allowing each other to punch each other in the Especially face striking yeah like i, I yeah. make that that discrepancy between like jujitsu is uncomfortable but it's so safe because there's always so a safe. restart button, sparring is different off button, yeah. like striking sparring like yeah. If, if you even start professionals, to lose, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, and even professionals, like when they're preparing for a fight and training, and they bring in sparring partners, they have interact. They have like conflicts, and like they get their bell rung. Like Justin Gaethje yeah. just got nearly knocked out in yeah, sparring and it went viral. That. Yeah, and like think of it like that. It's real. If damage. you train with that person all the time, it it builds a unique bond. Just like if you're a hockey player and there's a guy you fought a bunch of times over the, over the course of your career, you end up being like really tight. Mm-hmm. because there's something unique that happens in that exchange. And even fighters, after a fight, you're, you're forever bonded together because you just went in there together. And, and so yeah, Corey and I had... together. Like, that's the thing. Yeah, it's a good yeah. bet. Yeah, and so Corey and I had this really strange relationship where I didn't put up with the shit, and I could put him in his place, but we got heated all the time with each other. Now, Derek never had that. Like, Derek was, like, kind of like the kid that... Corey could pick on like he could take out his frustrations on him but he couldn't do it with me mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> Derek started to like you know I, I don't want him here anymore and like you know we need to get him out and I'm like that's easier said than done like the guy's living here like w- what are we going to do just take all of his stuff and put it outside and say <laughs> you're not here anymore like like yeah. it's one of those tough situations yeah. and this all culminates in like early December of the year that I was there and I'm about to go home for Christmas so 
One night, Derek's working at the comedy store, and Corey and I have probably the most intense sparring session we ever have. Mm-hmm. And all I know about him is that he grew up in Baltimore. He actually came for money, and he decided he wanted to be an actor. And he actually had a kid with a girl there and, and left them to come to L.A. and do the thing that people do to try to become an actor mm-hmm. and thought that his dad would bankroll him. And then when he got there, his dad was pissed that he just picked up and left and said, I'm not going <laughs> to give you any money. And Corey lived like he was broke. But I'm like, dude, he wouldn't give up the Rolex. He wouldn't give up like the nice clothes. And like, mm-hmm. he just, he, he had that like LL Cool J swagger. He always had like one leg rolled up and the other <laughs> leg down. Like, you know, he just nice. had that thing. He always had like bling in his ears. And, yeah. but he wouldn't let that go. But he had no money and he would always rely on Derek that's like or I. A, that's a personality trait I've seen in people. It's like, uh, especially people that had money and then lost it, like they still have sort of a bar that they have to like, like live by in terms of like life expenses. Like, exactly. Uh, yeah, you meet those people where they're like, yeah, they're poor yeah. and they're always talking about being poor, but like their standard of living is high. <laughs> well, like, and that's that's always yeah. the danger that I try to explain to people about a place like LA. People don't understand how many people that are already famous are really struggling mm-hmm. because you get a taste of success. Listen, maybe you do one show and the show does well, and let's say you do three seasons. And then you go and you buy the $10 million house or the $5 million house, whatever it is, and you start living like you're now a celebrity. And then you don't get another gig. And then it's 2008 and and your house is worth nothing. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you don't, you don't have money coming in, but you've, you've chosen this, this certain demo, this certain level of lifestyle. Yeah. You know, with a certain value to it. And so a lot of people have a really hard time and they don't want to give up the sheen of whatever celebrity they touched. And they want to keep that sort of image alive. And a lot of people really struggle. And like YouTube just gave me a video, I suggested a video the other day of like 10 people that were famous and now have regular jobs. (laughs) And, you know, that kind of thing. And it's like (laughs) eight eight, eight of those, yeah, eight of those 10 were not famous. They were like in a movie. It's like the, the, the redhead dude from American Pie. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, Sherman. yeah. It's like Sherman. yeah, Sherman. Yeah. yeah, it's like Sherman's not famous. He's a waiter in L.A. And, but I'm like, he's not famous. He just had a part in a movie that mm-hmm. did really well. Um, but there's people that you know think that they're suddenly <laughs> famous because they have you know a recurring role somewhere. And I don't think the average person ever contemplates what that kind of pressure is like. Like, and, and as you get older in life and you have friends that you know do better and live get bigger houses and nicer cars and then you start to see you know your network grow and and there's this kind of you know the keeping up with the joneses element that kind of sticks with it and i think for celebrities and people that want to be famous in the public eye that's even worse and it same thing applies to you know professional athletes bringing up selling sunset there's the one girl who was formerly married to a, a football player who wasn't a you know elite level football player he was in the nfl but he only made like 200 something grand a year yeah and didn't have any money left and all of a sudden she's doing like odd jobs and doing whatever she had to because she was a single mom like there's more of those stories than there are of like lebron stories Mm -hmm. like the lebrons are like literally the unicorns and he's an anomaly in every way yeah yeah and and the majority of people are like regular people that get suddenly make more money than they've ever dreamed of and have a they're on the stage but they're only only on the stage for a brief period of time, and then they have to go back to being a regular person. And once you've, like you said, Patrick, once you touch that and you have that certain lifestyle, it's a really bitter pill for people to swallow to go back to drinking cheap, shitty coffee from McDonald's instead of, you know, going to Earth Cafe and being one of those people and 
spending their day there and shopping on Rodeo, which is lame as fuck, but people think that's <laughs> so a thing. Lame. That uh, place sucks. It's so fucking lame. Oh my God, Beverly Hills itself. There's parts of Beverly Hills that I would live in, but there's like Beverly Hills itself sucks. Mm-hmm. But people think because Selling Sunset and all these shows always show those, you know, opening segment clips of like the Bugatti going down Rodeo Drive and people coming out with bags. And it's like, oh, I want to go there and do that. Yeah, no, you don't. I, Trust me, you don't. It's, it's funny. My LA experience is so far from that. Like the, the industry itself that everybody thinks of LA as, like, it has no no level of involvement in my life anyway. Like I, I love LA for, and a lot of those things are missing right now with everything closed, but like uh, we're coming up on Halloween time. Like I can't think of a better city, maybe New York, but in terms of like the fun immersive theater events and like all the weird Halloween walkthroughs and just because there are so many entertainment people in the city and they're always mm-hmm. looking for things to do, like any sort of thing to do, any sort of work, there just ends up being all these ridiculously cool and unique experiences. Um, that, you want, you want to hear my first, th- this is my first Halloween in LA. Do you want to hear it? I bet yeah. it's great. <laughs> so, uh, we're living in that hostel still. This is October. Mm-hmm. And we decide we met these two guys from France, Jan and Eves. And we met them because we were on Santa Monica Beach because I used to play volleyball right next to the pier there. And we saw all this commotion and the lifeguards running out to go like pull somebody in. So, anyways, <laughs> one of these French guys thought it would be cool to rent a jet ski and go ride a jet ski. And he got like, I don't know a thousand feet out and then the thing stalled and he didn't know what to do. So he just oh. started screaming for help. Oh. <laughs> and so, yeah, so they, the lifeguards had to go out and somehow tow him back. I think they borrowed a jet ski from someone to, cause they don't have jet skis. It's not Baywatch. And they go out and they tow him back in and, and it was kind of a thing cause it's right next to the pier and everyone's watching and it was like super embarrassing moment. And he was at no point in any real danger. He's sitting on a jet ski out in the water. Yeah. But he's like a foreigner. He didn't know. Yeah. And so we went over to talk to him. We're like, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? Because we had seen him at the hostel. He was staying at the same hostel. <clears throat> so we became friends. So Halloween comes up, and I'm like, what do you guys want to do? I'm like, why don't we go up? Apparently, West uh, Hollywood is like the place to be because they, they're like, it's like a big street party because they closed down. <laughs> yeah. It's like San Monica Boulevard's closed down from like where the Troubadour is, like Doheny up to oh, like yeah. something else. And um, so I'm like, hey, so we go up there, we take the blue bus, <laughs> and <clears throat> we get off because the street's closed off, and we walk up. And it was like walking into the Twilight Zone for me. And I'm like, there's like people partying in the street. And I didn't know what West Hollywood was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that West Hollywood was like the gay village. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's one giant village people music video. On a, totally. On a yeah, so really, yeah. So we're walking up there and there's like a motorhome, like an old Winnebago with like uh, party lights on it. And like two guys just hanging out the door and like thongs with like drinks with like little umbrellas on them. And they're like, Hey boys, come on in. And I'm like, I'm like in my mind, I'm like, I'm not going in there. Like, uh, like, like you think all the worst things you're like, this is really intimidating. Like it, it's, and so we, we decide not to stay there too long. We walk all the way up to sunset. We go to Mel's diner. <clears throat> and so by the time we're there at Mel's diner, it's, I think it's after midnight by this point. <clears throat> and so we get in there, we're waiting in line for a table. And the only table was at the back. They had this big kind of group table that's at like 10 people, but there's only four of us. And the girl's like, I can sit you there if you don't mind sharing. If more people come in, I'm like, no problem. Sit down at the table. I'm sitting there with Philly and Jan and Eves from France. And 
as a kid growing up, I don't know if this is, was a thing in your generation, but like, you know, you used to have supermodel posters on your closet door. And my, my supermodel was Cindy Crawford. I just, she covered my, my bedroom doors as mm-hmm. a teenager. I'm sitting there and I see this group come in of geisha girls. <clears throat> it's Halloween. So they're in geisha girl costumes mm-hmm. and I'm looking at them and I just like right away, I'm like, holy fuck. And it's Randy Gerber, the owner of Sky Bar, and Cindy Crawford, and then a bunch of models. <laughs> That's funny. And I'm and I'm sitting there and I'm watching this, and like the guys are eating their French fries and whatever, and I'm just watching, and I see the the hostess like point at her table and I'm looking and I make eye contact and I'm like nodding yes at her, like yes, <laughs> they can sit here, yes. <laughs> and so my first Halloween in LA. Cindy Crawford and her husband and three models come and share a table with us at Mel's diner. And so Jan and Eves have no idea who's sitting there. Mind you, like their faces are white and they have like full geisha outfits on. Mm -hmm. And like Randy was actually just dressed in a suit. (laughs) He's (laughs) just Randy. Yeah. yeah, Cause he owns sky bar. I think he was just like, you know, they probably had a party there and then Mm -hmm. they came to get food. But I'm sitting next to Randy and Cindy and I'm like talking to them. I'm like, you know that, I grew up with you on my closet door and stuff. And she's like, oh, that's sweet and stuff. And I'm and like, the guys no have no idea. told me that before. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. And, and like, none of them know what's happening right now. Like, I'm having this moment and like, they, they're completely clueless as to what, who's sitting with us. Because everyone in the whole place is in a costume, except for us. None of us are wearing a costume. And so we proceed to, you know, we eat and we finish and we leave before they do. And I say, it's nice to meet you and all that kind of stuff. And we go out and as we're walking out. I'm like, do you idiots know who we're sitting with? <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, that was Cindy Crawford. They're like, see, who's Cindy? I'm like, oh my God. Oh, wow. I'm like, that was it. So like, they had no idea. And like, these are the things, this is what I, t- what I kind of mean when I first said, everyone's always waiting for that, like brush with that moment. Yeah. And I had a ton of those because it's a very normal thing. Like, it's not odd that we were across the street from Sky Bar and ran into the owner of Sky Bar and his wife. It just so happens that his wife was my, you know, teenage model idol. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's LA. Like, that's, that's their, that's where they are. It's not like they came to where I am. Like, I'm in their territory. It's like, don't be surprised if you see a shark when you're in the ocean. Here and there, world that's, now, Paul. That's the fucking shark's house. <laughs> <laughs> like, why people ask surprised all the time? It's like, oh my god, yeah. I'm in the woods and there's a bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in the bear's house, asshole. That's of course, of course, there's a bear there. And so I had a lot of those experiences, and they were like incredibly amazing. Like I was broke. I was like, you know, I, I think I got grilled cheese because it was the cheapest thing on the menu. But I had this incredible, amazing experience that wouldn't be believable to most people like that. I got to sit there and have that. And so years later I'm in Toronto and I'm in chapters bookstore. Our, our chapter chapters is like Barnes and Noble here for us. Mm-hmm. And as I'm leaving, I see a sign at the front door with a picture of Cindy Crawford and she's there to do a book signing. And just as I'm leaving, I see her walk in and I watch her walk over to the, the cash desk and like talk to a, a clerk to say, I'm here for like the book thing or whatever. And so I beeline for her. And she's walking, she's walking away from the thing. And I'm like, Cindy. And she's like, yes. I'm like, I'm going to tell you a story. Do you have a moment? She's like, yeah. I'm like, do you remember like maybe 10, 15 years ago, Halloween, you were dressed like a geisha girl. She's like, Mel's Diner. I'm like, yes. No <laughs> I'm like, yes. I'm like, I was sitting with, and I told her that my friends didn't know who she was. <laughs> and she's like, that's hilarious. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, it was amazing for me. Cause I literally, like I told you then, I, like, I grew up with you on my door and I thought it was just the crazy craziest coolest thing that you just happen to come and sit and that's sit funny. with us she's like she's like that's really sweet she's like that's funny that you remember that and i'm like of course i remember that <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that i remember that and then we just had like a little quick chat and i'm like well it's nice to meet you good luck with the book thing and and she's like oh thank you and she went up and i was just like 
it's one of those examples of as you get older in life and you have those kind of interactions that they're just normal people. Like she didn't come in mm-hmm. with an escort and get dropped off by a limo. She probably was staying in a nearby hotel and she was promoting her book and she was on the downslope of her celebrity, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's now no longer like a working model. I don't think she was now doing, uh, you know, writing books and then doing like some sort of collabs with like furniture stores or whatever it might be. And, but I still know who she was. She's still a beautiful woman, but totally down to earth, like stood there, talked to me, didn't have any kind of attitude. And like, she's had her moment in the sun and now she's kind of like a regular mom, Mm -hmm. but she just happens to be doing a book signing, which isn't, uh, like a very glorious thing. I've been to book signings. It's quite sad because usually they're a terrible turnout. There's like 30 people there to watch you read a paragraph of your book and, and, and you're signing it and hoping that people buy your book and it's never like lined up out the door. I was born in South Ontario. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so yeah, Kelly LA gave me Fleshman. What I forgot the name <laughs> of the killer. <laughs> so I, I have to tell you this. I don't know. I didn't think that we this whole thing would be about LA, but I have to finish it's the about, Corey's. Uh, yeah, you, we're coming yep. up on time, so you got to put it put, yep. put the cherry on top of this. We'll okay, put, here, put the cherry on top, and then I have one follow up question cool. about LA. Okay, here, here's the cherry. So um, Christmas is approaching. I'm going to head back to Ontario to see my family. Corey and I have like the most intense sparring session ever where I had to cut it short because we were beating the shit out of each other and it was getting really, really heated. And I think he was like two months into like real stress of like no movement on a career. Dad to cut him off, pressure from the baby mama to come back. And like he was, there was a lot. And I think someone like him having to live for two months without any money in a city like that was tough. And he had made a couple of friends that were working actors and could go to clubs and do things. And I think that was too much of an ego bruise for him. And so he was kind of taking out our sparring session. So I I stopped the sparring session. We sit down on the floor and we just start talking. We have like our first like real kind of heart to heart where I, I kind of really get to know him. And this is, this is how this conversation goes. We're sitting there all sweaty and stuff. And I think I was even bleeding because I think he gave me a good shot in the mouth. And he's like, I'm like, uh, did you always grow up in Baltimore? He's like, no. He goes, we were outside of Baltimore, kind of like in a rural area. My dad actually had a farm. And that's actually how he made his money in the beginning. And then he started a business with the money he made farming. And we moved to the city and stuff. And he goes, but he goes, I was a kid. He goes, I, I know I look like a certain type of person. He goes, but I grew up riding dirt bikes out in the country and me and my best friend would always ride our dirt bikes. And we we're always like just kids getting in trouble. And he goes, and he goes, and one day he goes, we were riding the usual trail. I don't know if you, how much time you guys spend in the country, but a lot of places, rural places have like dirt trails from like kids riding their dirt bikes or mm-hmm. ATVs along like kind of the edge of a farm field next to a highway kind of thing. And we just saw this the other day. We were coming back from camping trip and we saw all these little kids like probably like nine or 10 on those little mini dirt bikes riding along the side of the road which i think is the coolest thing and so that was his upbringing and he goes and so one day we're riding the usual trail that we ride and we used to always get in trouble and the, the local sheriff would always come to his house talk to his dad because him and his best friend would ride towards like perpendicular to the highway and jump the ditch and jump the highway with the dirt bike <laughs> jesus yeah, yeah, I know. And, and listen, that's something I'm familiar with, like where I'm from. Crazy. That's a thing. And like, yeah. I grew up where guys did that on snowmobiles. They would ride snowmobiles. <laughs> no, seriously, from town to town. Yeah. And they would like jump stuff and ride through farmer's fields and all that kind of stuff. And so he's telling me the story. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I get it. I grew up in a small town like that. And he goes, so one day he goes, we're doing that ride and we, we're kind of being competitive and we're racing and we're racing for like that ditch to do the jump. And he goes, my buddy kind of gets the better of me and he gets ahead of me and we're like, we're full throttle, just 
flying down this farmer's field, heading for the, the, the jump that we always do. And he goes, and like two seconds before we hit the jump, he goes, I look out of my peripheral vision and I see off in the distance, I see a semi coming. And he goes, and it's point of no return. He goes, neither of us can stop. And he goes, my friend hits the jump like a second before I do. Semi takes him head on straight out. And he goes, he goes, I fly into the side of it as it's going by and it takes us both out. And I'm sitting there looking at him like, how the fuck are you here? Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, whole, and like, I'm like taken aback because he's telling me a story about his like 17 year old best friend getting fucking killed by a semi truck. Yeah. It's a heavy story. <laughs> yeah. And, and he's like, he's like, yeah, he goes, I was in a coma for like uh, many months. I guess they induced a coma. And he goes, so when I woke up, he goes, I woke up, my eyes open. He goes, I just remember that my family is standing around me. And he goes, my dad sat in the bed with me and proceeded to tell me. And then Corey reaches down and proceeds to take off his leg. Whoa. And he goes, and my dad told me that I lost my leg. And I'm wow. like, I had no. You didn't know the whole time? Fu- I had no idea. Wow. And I had still sparred. had great boxing footwork. I had sparred with this guy for two months, lived Jeez. with the guy for two months, saw him come in and out of the shower because we shared a bathroom, and I didn't know. Wow. And, and the lesson from it, and I told the story I said at dinner, it was like, you think you know someone, you can live with someone and think you know someone and have no fucking idea what their actual story is. And I, 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 to this day, I just I, literally, you know, people say, oh, my, my jaw was on the floor. No, I was literally like, I, I was speechless. Mm-hmm. And he, he literally took off his left leg. And showed it to me. And it was like a very high end prosthetic where the, he had skin matched his skin. Wow. And that's why he would wear one leg rolled up. And it was always his prosthetic leg. Oh, because so it, it was so realistic that, and he had kind of like, you know, he walked with kind of a swagger. So he kind of, whatever limp he had, he masked it by he like made a it way. Into like a, yeah, he, yeah, like a yeah, he made it part of his, yeah. his movement. And mm-hmm. I was just like looking at him like, I couldn't fucking believe. Like, I felt so. I don't know how to describe it. It was like it was like the first moment for me, I guess, as an adult, of realizing how narrow-minded our vision can be, mm-hmm. and how we can see just what we want to see, mm-hmm. and like we're never really as curious or inquisitive as we think we are. We 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 create our perception and we live in that perception, and until someone shatters that for you, you can con- continue to live in it. And that's like a great analogy for like how we see people in LA or what we see on television, the perception is created for us. And then we live in that perception. And what's happened this past year and say the past five to six years with the way cancel culture has happened is all these bubbles are being burst. All of a sudden people are being revealed, not necessarily in a great way. Mm -hmm. I'm not a a fan of it. Sometimes accurate, but yeah. Sometimes accurate. Yeah. But, but a lot of heroes, you know, it's like that old quote, like, you know, don't ever get to know your heroes. Yeah. We're, we're realizing how flawed and how human everyone is and that whatever yeah. veneer people like Corey had a, a, a lot of effort into his veneer. Like mm-hmm. he wore the Rolex, no matter how broke he was, he wouldn't give it up. He could have sold that Rolex and, and skated for a year or two. You know what I mean? Yeah. He could have been fine living in LA for a long period of time. He just refused to because he didn't want to burst that bubble. And f- for some reason he chose that night to like, be honest with me and like share probably the most personal thing about him in his life. And I remember saying to me, he's like, you know, don't tell Derek. And I'm like, why do I have to live with the secret? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, don't tell Derek. Like, yeah. what, what difference does it make if Derek knows? Yeah. And I, I think it's, I, I've, I'm not 
disabled. I don't know what that experience is like. I have a friend back home that is in a wheelchair. We call him wheels and he's, he lives more than most of us. Like he's, he always had the coolest car and he always, you know, he was one of the first to get married and have kids and like lives a total great life. He had a, mm-hmm. a spinal injury from roofing. Um, it never hindered him in any way. We never treated him like he was disabled. You know, we'd always laugh our ass off when we'd go to a party and it was like a two-story walk-up. We all had to pick him up and carry him. <laughs> and we'd all, we'd always be joking that we're going to drop him. And like, you know, um, like we didn't treat him like he was disabled at all. He was just like one of the guys. Mm-hmm. And so I think he assumed that he would be treated differently. So he didn't want anyone to know. He didn't want it to be known that this was part of who he was. And so he kept it. Uh, I mean, like I, I've, to this day, I've never met anyone that like, listen, girls pluck their eyebrows and draw them back in. And everyone knows, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. there's no secret fake tits. We all know there's mm-hmm. no secret there. Something like this, like he literally kept it. Yeah, that's crazy. Com- yeah. It, I mean, I'm I, very impressed by the prosthetic. <laughs> that, oh, that's it, incredible. It, it, yeah. Now, when he took the sock off and then showed like the top portion, so it was just above the knee where it attached, um, like it was basically the calf and then the top of the ankle that was completely like real. Like it looked like, you know, it was a real skin. And he explained to me, he's like, yeah. Cause I was like, how, like, I, I wouldn't know. Like I see your leg all the time. He's like, yeah. He goes, it's like a really high end prosthetic. They match your skin color. And like, like you, you, it's custom made for you. It's not like one of those like opaque, plexi or, or plastic thing it, it's made for him and he goes it's like his third one like he had one of the ones that i think everyone has seen where you can see that it's a prosthetic and then you go through a process for fitting and and i, I guess because of his age because he was still a teenager he couldn't get like a, 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 a there's no permanent one but he couldn't get oh, one that would last fully grown yeah exactly yeah like so he had to like do a different one each year and then finally when he got into his 20s and he was i guess I don't think he was going to get much bigger than six, four or whatever, but um, then he could get that like high end custom prosthetic that was, would last a certain period of time. But I had no idea. You could see from the top, like when he took it off the top section that connected and then under the sock, there was like a ball joint to the foot. Like it wasn't fully covered, but the foot itself and the toes looked like a real foot. Nice. Wow. All right. I mean, like mind blown. It was like, I couldn't believe Two months I lived with this guy and had no clue. All right, so real quick, I have two questions. First thing is, uh, sure. what wound up happening with Corey? Did he wind up moving out before Christmas, or did Derek say, "Hey, no idea"? So, so I went in December. I went home to visit family for Christmas, and then my mother and sister begged me to stay because I was broke, and they're like, "Just stay here and work." And because my mom was petrified that I would go back to LA broke, and and listen, I was literally one foot from being homeless the whole time, like like you were never you never escaped the feeling of eviction like because you didn't know where your money was coming from and and i couldn't work legally and so i try i couldn't buy a job in toronto like i i couldn't get a job as a stock boy at the shoe company i couldn't get a job doing anything really and i, I think part of it was i psychologically didn't want to so i was probably a horrible interview every time i went for a job <laughs> interview and i was like the brother on my sister's couch and she mm-hmm. lived right downtown and so the thing that changed for me was about maybe a month or two in i'd say a couple months in and like i'm constantly talking to her. and i had a girlfriend back in la at the time too and i was like talking about Derek and my girlfriend saying listen i don't know when i'm coming back i'm just trying to find work so i can make money to come back all my stuff was there like i left all my stuff at my apartment in la i didn't bring it with me all my sparring gear cologne your t- your t- everything t- i brought t- with your, me you're not the cologne what about the towel yeah 
Yeah, my call is my cologne. But yeah, the towel's still there in LA. <laughs> uh, I can't believe that. <laughs> what are you going to do? Striped towel. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I had no place to sleep. Um, <laughs> but uh, so one day um, I'd go to this cafe near my sister's apartment and pretend to be a writer all day. And then one day I'm walking back to my sister's apartment and there's a film set. Like there's all the trucks and everything for a film set. And I see this guy standing by a door in like a blue security jacket. And I just walk up to him. I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? He's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, what do you like? Do you work here for the movie? He's like, yeah. He goes, I do security. I'm like, how do I do that? He's like, uh, here. And he, he goes, I'll give you the number. He goes, call Rick and Rick. And I'm like, all right. So this guy gives me, writes down a number, and I, I have to call Rick and Rick. So that night I go home and I proceed to make a resume. Patrick would know that this is true, like as a designer and like that kind of person. I wasn't just going to like call them. Like I sat down and I made like a custom resume for these. This, these two guys that own a security company, Rick and Rick, mm-hmm. and I put in my martial arts background. And then one time, my instructor and I were hired to bodyguard a soap opera star for the Heart and Stroke Foundation. And we just had to basically ride in a limo with her to like this venue where she was doing a charity thing and then take her back to wherever wasn't an airport back to, I guess, her hotel. Exactly. And that was Protection. it. Like, yeah. yeah, we just like in the car there and back. And that was it. But I, I put on the resume that I was, I bodyguarded. I can't remember her name, Jeannie something. She was Catherine Chancellor on Young and the Restless. I only know because my mom and sister would watch it all the time. And then um, my martial arts background. And then I happened to train some of the police force in my hometown. So I put that in there too. So I put together this resume, send it off, fax it. Next morning I get a phone call. Is this Paul? I'm like, yeah, this is Rick and Rick. <laughs> Can you start today? And I'm like, oh shit, yeah, of course. And I'm like excited to get work. And so they they gave me the address to go to this film set, and I think I'm gonna, I'm going to be watching you know garbage cans and pylons. And I get there anyways. I find this old beat up truck and these two hillbillies in there, Rick and Rick, sitting there. And I'm like, I'm Paul, and they kind of look me up and down because I think they expected a Corey, but they got a Paul. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm like five nine and 160 pounds, yeah. and um, they're like, okay, come with me. And so he walks me over to a trailer and. There's a guy in a security jacket. He's like, hey, you can go. And he knocks on the trailer door, and the door opens, and Nev Campbell steps out. And they're like, Nev, this is Paul. Paul, this is Nev. Paul will be taking care of you. And I'm like, I will? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, what the fuck is happening right now? I'm like, this is so weird. And because of – I said to Rick, I'm like, why, why am I doing this? He's like, you're the only person that's ever sent us a resume. <laughs> and that's, they that's hire, the moral of the story. They, they hire, like, guys because they look like bouncers. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I happen to have – a resume and some sort of background. And so they put me on cast security and that's how I got in the film business. And I just kept working and I never went back to LA. And so four or five months in, you know, I'm having conversations with Derek and he's like angry with me. He's like, you left me here. I'm like, I'm not your boyfriend. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, like, I have a girlfriend that I left there. She's, she can be upset with me. You're just like my friend and my roommate. Like I, I didn't mean to like leave and not come back, but I didn't plan any of this. Like none, none of this experience was planned. Mm-hmm. This was, I've fumbled through the whole thing and he really didn't take it well. And like, he was very angry with me and, and skip forward. Like all these years, I've tried about 10 times over the last 20 something years to reach out to him. And the last time was probably about five years ago. One of the times I was in LA and I, I got a hold of his wife. I looked him up and she's like, I'm like, I am trying to find Derek. She's like, yeah, I'm his wife. And I'm like, I'm Paul. We used to be friends. She's like, I know who you are. Oh, and i'm like oh. and i'm like yeah towel guy <laughs> and she's like i don't think he's gonna talk to you i'm like i don't know why he's so upset i'm like we were best friends like i have nothing but like great memories of that i wrote a screenplay about it mm-hmm. like that year was so incredible in terms of the things that we experienced 
as two schmucks fumbling our way through LA, um, that like I have great memories of it. I'm like, I don't know why he's so upset with me. And, that was the name and of the so, movie, right? Two schmucks yeah, fumbling sure. their way through LA. <laughs> A lot of people are in that movie. Um, <laughs> but but I, I convinced her to tell him, like, tell me when he would be home. So I called back that evening and he answers the phone and I'm like, I'm like, Derek, it's Paul. He's like, what do you want? Ugh. He's like, he's like, yeah. why do you keep calling me? And I'm like, dude, like, I don't, why are you so angry? And like, all he really gave me was, he's like, you left me there with Corey. And he goes, that guy was terrible. And like bully. I'm like, Derek, I'm not your older brother. Like I didn't invite him to live with us. Like, like you did. And it wasn't easy for me either, but like, I didn't plan to just leave you there. Like I, I'm not responsible for you. And like, there is some, and I said to him, I'm like, is this like about money? Like, do you think I owe you something? Like, do you, do you feel like I owe you rent? Cause I'll get, tell me the number. If, that, if that's what this is all these years later, tell me the number and I'll give you the money. But if it's not that, what, like, what are you so angry about? And I can't, under, like we, we had a really deep discussion about it at the table. Everyone was kind of giving their perception on like why he was so hurt by me not coming back. And I don't think it was jealousy at all. Cause I wasn't like acting. And I wasn't like living his dream. I just happened to get into film. And the people that hire security on film are the location manager. The location manager became my mentor and gave me my first opportunity to be an assistant location manager. Then I became a location manager, then I became a production manager. And then like, you know, my career progressed, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't an actor. I wasn't like living his dream. It just so happened in a weird way that I ended up going home to Canada and getting in the film business. Like I didn't, I didn't plan it. And I don't think that's what it was. I think it was more, he had a really difficult time. And I think Corey really, I think Corey probably squeezed money out of him and probably treated him like shit. And, and Corey, uh, I think Derek felt kind of helpless in the situation. And uh, I think he finally just uh, gave up the lease on the apartment, giving Corey no option. And then they went their separate ways. And and I I have no idea whatever happened to Corey. Um, There was only one mutual friend that I stayed in touch with. And Derek became a real estate agent, got married, had kids, and refuses to talk to me. Mm. And to this day, I still look back on it fondly. Like I, I, I would not now, like I wouldn't really welcome him in my life as a friend now. Cause I know that we're both completely different people and we're grown men, but there was a long period of time there, like a good 10 years where I really wanted to like keep in contact and stay friends. And I was going, like Patrick knows this, I would go to LA all the time. Like I would go to LA at least a couple times a year. Mm. And so we could maintain a friendship, but he wanted no part of me really strange, really, really strange kind of experience. And, and in a weird way, like he doesn't owe me anything and I don't owe him anything, but he does owe me that had I not stopped him that day, his life wouldn't be what it is today. Mm-hmm. No, it's not what he thought it was going to be at 23 because none of our lives are what we thought they were going to be at 23. But he stayed in LA, he met his, his wife and had children. And as a father, regardless of where your relationships go in life, like you always secretly honor those people that made those small changes to your trajectory that made your life today possible. Like I have friends I'm not friends with anymore, but I know that like the friend that introduced my wife and I, that had she not made the introduction, my son wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And so there's something there. In terms of, yeah. And, and like, I think I've latched on to that attachment with him. Because he gave me, he made my experience in LA possible too, just by, you know, becoming my best friend there and going through all those experiences with me and like seeing what 
that experience in LA really is. And I think that's why I, wrote, I made a screenplay out of it because it's it's a, the most authentic view. It's not like swingers where like it was everyone wanted to be them when you saw swingers, right? Like you wanted to live I whatever. But I see. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but to some degree, you're like you. Yeah. Everyone wanted to do that. Vegas, baby, Vegas. Yeah. You know, like everyone. Yeah. I mean, the sheer amount of free time they had in their lives was enviable. Constantly, yeah. <laughs> Always free time to yeah. golf and do whatever. But yeah. Derek and I, it was like we struggled. Like we we were constantly trying to find a way to make money and trying to find shitty jobs and walking for hours on end because I didn't want to pay money to take a bus. Because if I if I spent money on the bus, then I didn't have money for dollar Chinese food that night. Like mm-hmm. it was a real struggle, but an amazing experience. I would never, I wouldn't change it for anything. And had I not had that experience, I wouldn't see LA the way that I see it. And I, I know LA very well because I know where to get great food for cheap. And I know I've been to the fancy restaurants and I know what the better experience is. And I know the city really well because I literally walked all of it because I didn't have a car. At no mm-hmm. point that first year did I ever have a car? It was either walk, rollerblade, or take the bus. And so I will always have a soft spot for that city for that reason. But yeah, he, I don't know. One day I'd just have one conversation where I could get out of him his full perspective because divergent perspectives are a thing and I have no idea what his view and his memory of that whole experience is. But I think the whole thing is marred by his last kind of few months with Corey and being alone with Corey. Yeah. And, and, and the, not the, having the, you on the rollerblades. He probably felt helpless <laughs> and like you were the person that would, like he probably saw you being able to stand up to Corey and not him. It was a compounding frustration and helplessness on his part that he couldn't sort of uh, yeah. stick up for himself the way you did. Yeah. And, and, and he was the, this and that was his personality. I once made him at a bus stop go try to pick up a girl because <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he was like oh my god that girl's so beautiful i'm like go ask her out he's like i can't do that i'm like walk over there and talk to her and just ask her out and it was like it was hysterical watching him <laughs> so ner- nervously stumble towards this girl and like try to talk to her and like he even started laughing at one point nervously because he'd like he was like i remember him talking with his hands like trying to explain to her why she should go out with him <laughs> and I, I remember like 30 feet I away just watching it always works <laughs> Yeah. And he, funny enough, he got her number, but he never went out with her. But like, uh, he was just that kid. He was the kid from Jerry Maguire in an yeah. adult body. And <laughs> I, I think I know why he didn't want to talk to you, Paul. Did you always call him that? <laughs> no, but I told him, I'm like, you know, you look like, you know, you're the reason why, from Jerry Maguire. <laughs> you know, the, the reason why I went to LA was Jerry Maguire. Oh, that's funny. I was that, managing movie theaters and at the end of the night, you'd go into one of your theaters and just stand there and watch whatever was left of a movie. And I've probably seen Jerry Maguire 50 times at that point. And because it was so the year I this experience happened the year after Jerry Maguire was out. Oh, because I was, I was, I had seen Jerry Maguire for the 50th time. And, and it was not the you have me at hello thing. It was the manifesto and hanging your balls out there that yeah. struck a chord with me. And so I decided to hang my balls out there and go to LA. <laughs> and it wasn't for the movie, but it was just, I wanted to get out of the town, you know, the small town in Southwestern Ontario and live a little. And I had a bunch of money saved from when I was a bartender, literally in a box. And I'm like, I'm going to go for a month and see what happens. And I had to give up my job. Like I asked for a leave of absence and my manager was like, you're like a part-time manager at a movie theater. You don't get a leave of absence. (laughs) (laughs) You're not like the VP of something. Good thing for asking though. And she's like, no. And I'm like, all right, check you later. (laughs) I bought a ticket and I was gone with no real plan and uh, had the time of my life. And uh, uh, people should do that. 
And it was scary as hell, but also the best time I've ever had. Like it's, I, I, I'm talking about it 20 something years later. Yeah. Um, and so I have a unique positive perspective of LA. And when I was working in film as an adult and working with some big name people, and I remember having a conversation with a director of a movie and we, he's like, you ever been in LA? I'm like, yeah, I used to live there. And I'm like, he's like, where? Oh, I lived you know, on the east of Fairfax and I lived in Toluca Lake. He's like, I live in Toluca Lake. And, and so we started talking. I was telling him a bunch of my like great experiences there. And he was looking at me puzzled. He's like, I have never met anyone that sat in front of me and told me all these like great nostalgic stories about LA. He goes, everyone I talk to has like horrible business stories they about like their, their hate stories. Yeah. 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 And he's like, he, he was really perplexed by me. And I'm like, yeah, no, I had a really great like experience. And he was just, he couldn't believe that he had met someone <laughs> and yeah. he was like, yeah, he was a guy in his fifties. I didn't know this was going to turn into sort of an ode to LA past, but I'm happy with how this turned out, Paul. <laughs> yeah, very different than the first one. Yeah, very yeah. different. So real quickly, one final one final thing I'm curious about, because it sounds like you, you've seen a lot of different people's sort of ex- perspectives and experiences in Los Angeles, and you yourself had two different experiences. Um, yeah. If you could give like one piece of advice to somebody who's coming here as a first time or whether or not they're trying to get into the industry, whether it's about their mindset or their perspective or patience or whatever it is, what's sort of the, the one overarching theme that, that you could see that you've seen and you could help sort of like download into somebody else to help them avoid some of the pain and frustration you've seen other people go through. Do you remember the story I told the first time about piggy about the Kenny, the pig farmer? Yes. Yes. Okay. Do you want me to tell that again? So people have, do we have time for that? Yeah, yeah, real quick. A very abridged version. Yes. Okay. So I'll give you a abridged version. So the second time I'm working in film in Toronto, I make the mistake of talking to my friend who I used to bartend with, who's this great guy named Kenny who had moved back to Quebec to work on a pig farm where he's from. And I, I, not to be bragging, I was just like blown away as a kid from a small town that I'm working in film and I'm making like thousands of dollars a week without any education or anything. So I'm on the phone with Kenny. I'm like, dude, I can't believe it. I'm making like thousands of dollars a week. And I don't like, I didn't even have an education and blah, blah. And he's like, that's amazing. Blah, blah. Three days later, I get a phone call. Paul, it's Kenny. I'm like, what's up, man? He's like, I'm here. I'm like, you're where? He's like, I'm in Toronto. I'm like, what the fuck for? He's like, to work with you in film. I'm like, oh my God, what have I done? I, I, I somehow convinced him that like anyone could come. And I think this is kind of what LA is like. Everyone thinks that when they hear a story about someone finding any modicum of success, that they can go there and do it too. Mm-hmm. So Kenny comes to Toronto to be in film. And I'm a location manager. Okay. Like I, I have no pull. I can't give him any opportunities. So I'm stuck with Kenny. So my first thought, and this is the answer to your question, how do you prepare someone for a city like LA or for a business like film? So I said to, Sonny, I'm up to Kenny, I'm like, Kenny, you need to go to a film set and see what it's really like. Because 99% of the world's never been on one and don't actually know what it's like to see that the rocks are styrofoam and that you know there's nothing behind the wall and that everyone's as insecure as everyone else. So I call a friend who's on a film and I'm like, can we just come by? I want my friend to be on a set and I don't know anything about the movie. So she tells me where they're shooting, downtown Toronto, a block from where I got my first my, my first day on set, right downtown. So Kenny and I go to the set. I have no idea what we're going to. I, I'm, at, to that point, I've been working on shitty independent films, and I think that's what we're going to. And we get there, and it's like a $40 million Hollywood feature. So we go and stand under the director's tent at Video Village, and I just like, Kenny, stand here. Don't talk to anyone. Don't touch anything, and no one will know any different. I just want you to watch what this is like so you know what you're sort of getting into and we're standing there and there's a little bit of a hustle and then finally you hear like a ad go okay everyone back to one and so crew and director and actors start filing out backstory 
Kenny's favorite film of all time is Goodfellas. I don't know anything about the movie that we're at, the, the set that we're on. We're standing there. I'm trying to give Kenny a lesson in humility and like see what it's really like in film. And out walks Robert Duvall, Denzel Washington, Ray Liotta, Anne Heche, Eddie Griffin, and, and all these famous people that I've never even been on set with. Yeah. And Kenny's face is like, ah, he's looking at Ray Liotta, his favorite actor of all time. And I'm just blown away that I fucked this up, that I was trying to teach him a lesson. And here I am giving him like, like the Hollywood tour. The most motivation <laughs> the first you could give someone. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm like, oh my God. Uh, I'm even kind of like, holy shit, Robert Duvall. Um, and so we, I don't know anything about the movie. And, and this like six foot four guy comes over and stands right in front of, we're right behind the row of, of director's chairs and stands right in front of me and Kenny at a director's chair and like doesn't sit in it, it leans on the back of it. And I don't know who he is, but then I realize he's the director. And so everyone's getting into their positions and stuff. And it's a scene out front of this hospital. It's the movie John Q. And Eddie Griffin's in the back of a cop car. And uh, Robert Duvall and Hayes aren't in the scene. So they're just standing there with the director watching the video. And so me and Kenny are like, holy shit. And so as they're about to get going and they're like, you know, checking the camera and getting everything, getting ready to roll. And the first lady's like, okay, we're ready to go. Everyone ready? And the director, six foot four guy, turns to Kenny, the pig farmer, and goes, I can't fucking believe I'm doing this. I'm just waiting for someone to tell me I'm a fucking fraud and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and Kenny looks at me and I'm like, holy shit. And we proceed to watch this whole scene get filmed with Denzel Washington and everything. And we finally leave after about a half hour. And I learned that that director was uh, Nick Cassavetes who did The Notebook and a bunch of other great movies. Mm-hmm. And that was his first real big, like $40 million feature with like a big cast and like a Hollywood production. And he was just as insecure as Kenny and I were standing there that he couldn't believe that he was standing there directing these people Mm -hmm. and that he turned to like the first person to his left (laughs) who happened to be Kenny, the pig farmer and said, I can't fucking believe I'm doing this. I'm waiting for someone to tell me I'm a fraud and get the fuck out of here. (laughs) Action. And, and like that sums it up. Like I tell people all the time, everybody in every walk of life, no matter what they're doing has no fucking clue what they're doing. Mm. Everyone is making an educated guess. We just took our son. He's, he had really bloodshot eyes. We've been camping a lot and, and doing a lot of stuff outdoors, and his eyes were really irritated, and he had a bunch of white bumps on the white of his eye above his cornea. And so after a couple of weeks, we're like, hey, let's get it checked out. We go to an optometrist, checks it out, gives it a diagnosis. We go to get a prescription filled. Doctor says, I don't really know what this is, so I'm going to get another opinion from an ophthalmologist. So gets us connected with an ophthalmologist at the local hospital. We go have an appointment with him and then another ophthalmologist, and they kind of zero in on what it is. He says, okay, I want to make sure we're going to send you to the BC Children's Hospital to get their eye center to look at it. And so as parents, you're like, oh, my God, this is mortifying. And we go two days ago to see this other ophthalmologist at BC Children's, which is world-renowned. And they're looking at his eye through the little eye machine. And she's like, I don't know what this is. I've never seen it before. And I'm like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> I'm like, what the, well, you're wearing greens and a stethoscope. You've never seen this before. You're in your forties. Like what the fuck? And like I've, I've already read a bunch of studies online about all the possible things this can be. I've learned all these things about, you know, ocular conditions and, and the, the different uh-huh. layers of the eye and what this could be and how it could be treated and all this kind of stuff. And she just point blank, I don't know what this is. I'm going to call in a colleague, have him take a look. The colleague comes in, just down, he's like, 
I don't know what to tell you. I've never seen this before. <laughs> and he leaves. Oh, and I'm like, no one knows what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> Everyone is making an educated guess. That, du- that director had directed celebrities before, had a famous father, has directed movies before. But he's standing there going, holy fuck, I'm making a fuck ton of money to do this. I'm telling fucking Robert Duvall and Ray Liotta and Denzel Washington what to do. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I've never told Denzel Washington what to do before. Like everyone feels that way. And so the answer is whether it's in Toronto on a set, having that experience, or you're deciding to go to LA or you want to be in sports or you want to be in music, no matter who you meet or what you encounter, no one really is a hundred percent confident in what they're doing. They're not. Because everything is new. You're not doing the exact same thing. You might find some confidence in a guy that's been on the factory line at an auto factory for 30 years and he's been running the same machine. He knows that machine pretty fucking well. But when you get into things like creative arts or entrepreneurship or anything else, we're all full of shit. We're all kind of making our way through. We don't have a fucking clue. You just take your experience that you've had before and you try to apply it to what yeah. you're being asked to do. And, and LA is basically the hub of everyone pretending to have their shit together when they really, really don't. And, you know, we all know by now that reality shows aren't reality and they're fake and that none of that stuff, like if, why do we have to say out loud in 2020 that what you see on your TV about LA or Hollywood or in the movies isn't real? Like why? Yeah, people should have learned do, this lesson by now. Yeah, like, why are people surprised at any of this? Like, that people still watch reality shows and go, really? They didn't? Come on now. Like, the same thing applies to L.A. Now, I have a soft spot for L.A. I had a unique, and I call it a unique, not like a great or, it's not an experience that everyone would enjoy. Like, not everyone would enjoy what I went through in L.A. Because it was scary and hard. But I got through it, and I'm better for it. And I did see behind the curtain and I did have really authentic relationships. Skip forward to now. If I moved to LA this year and got back in the film business, I would probably have a pretty good experience. You know why? Because not much has changed in terms of my perception of people, but I'm certainly much more confident in who I am and what I'm capable of. And I can handle myself. I can handle myself then, but I can handle myself even more now. And I know that that, that producer that's got a lot of attitude and might be the yelling producer on set is equally insecure. And I understand as a grown man that that's what that is, that it's not power or something else. Whereas, you know, like, like a Derek would find that intimidating. I don't find that intimidating because I have enough life experience now ahead of me. So for people that wanted to go anywhere, Listen, no one's going anywhere anyways anytime soon because LA's not LA anymore. New York's not New York anymore. We live in a very different world. And I don't think people are going to ever look at LA the way that people did, say, 25 years ago because yeah. it's, it's, it's a different thing. And, and the world is much more global now. Like You can have that career in Vancouver. You can have that career in Toronto. Like You don't yeah, have yeah. to go to LA anymore. And you that changed that a long time ago. with a lower cost of living. Yeah. yeah you, that changed a long time ago. I was on a plane... Last time I went to to New York, next to I don't I don't know what to call him, but he's an established actor, and I knew him from a show that we watched, and it shot here in Vancouver, and I got to meet a few of the cast because we lived in Yelltown at the time, which is where a lot of people end up living when they're here doing an extended TV show, and so I'm like, yeah, I got to meet 
your castmate and so and so. And so we were talking. We had a very long talk. We talked the whole time on the plane because we were sitting next to each other. And he was moving to New York on a whim, like I did in my twenties. And the guys, he was I think forty eight, and he was he loved jazz music and he played the the trumpet. And he was like, I just decided he goes, I got no work right now. I'm not yeah, doing any shows. Or- here and play music. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm, I'm going to New York and I'm going to get an apartment and see if I can play some music. And I'm like, the guy's 48. <laughs> and he's he's got like a, a really long resume and he had cowboy. a really he had a really significant role on that TV show and he's fucking off to New York to just give it a go. And that's the reality. Like on paper you would think, well he's just going to go call an agent and get yeah. into something. No. No, that's not the case at all. He's going to go there and just make a go and he might be he said to me he goes he goes I play a lot of like street music like I play on the street a lot because that's like an automatic audience. You don't have to try to get into a club. And I'm like, that's probably a great lesson for most people is is I think young people think that they have to do everything a certain way and and in order to get to a certain level of success that they have to kind of tick a bunch of boxes in a a linear fashion. There's no line. There's no specific path. My path into LA and the film business were completely fucking weird and nobody could replicate it because it's so random. And so you have to think about why you would go there in the first place and think about the core of what it is. What's the purpose? Is someone going to move to LA to be an actor? Take the move to LA part out of it and go, okay, I want to be an actor. Yeah. What does that require? Be an actor. A YouTube do channel. Some local, yeah. Do, a YouTube, <laughs> TikTok, do some yeah. local theater. Find yeah. out if there's any filming in your city. Contact yeah. any university in any city in the fucking world. And there's a film department and a bunch of students that have the world-class gear now. Listen, I was just on a hike with my son in a forest. And we came upon a film set of students with like a fucking 6K dragon fucking epic camera. <laughs> Seriously. And a steady cam and the whole fucking nine yards that belongs to the school to make short films. There's no obstacle to you being an actor because they're yeah. not going to pay a shit, but you're probably going to get the part because they're yeah. not, they're not, there's no lineups to get in that film. And so it's easier than ever in terms of that industry to get in the gate. It's easier than ever to be, to do what I do. I'm a photographer and designer. There's no barrier to entry. Everyone's got a fucking camera. Everyone's got a MacBook or a computer with the software that they need. Get going. And I said this in our, our last talk, like there's this mentality and LA is the best example of some invisible wall that prevents you from getting opportunity. It doesn't exist. There oh, is no mind. barrier. Yeah. You yeah. can go to the same bars as celebrities. You can go to the same restaurants, which you don't want to because they're all overrated. Yeah, you, can do, yeah, you can do all the same shit, go to the same gym, go to like... There's no invisible barrier. You don't need anyone's fucking permission. Exactly. Well, Paul, I think that is a very valuable lesson. Well, I'll let you finish. No, but I, I was done. I was done. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, so I, I have a clarification. So I mentioned earlier Bob's Big Boy. Uh, it sounds so. I looked it up because so I was like, "What are you talking about, Hayden?" It's not. It set off my own bullshit detector. Um, <laughs> which is that they didn't, uh, so they've changed their mascot and it's okay. no longer Bob's big boy. It's just called big boy. And the mascot is no longer that curly haired little kid. It is now a blonde girl named Dolly. Okay. Well, that is so, weird. Which is weird. Is so now it's, yeah. Now it's big boy with Dolly, the blonde 
burger girl. Okay, so that doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any uh, sense. I think that is a that's probably a good thing to go out on, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's a parable for the nonsensical nature of LA at times. (laughs) That that leads into possible possible next podcast is like a gender equality podcast, and let's start with Dolly. Yeah, (laughs) we'll start with Dolly. Yeah, we'll 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 have you on again. I think you should move back to LA and uh, get that screenplay made. Oh, just, to, yeah. just so you can live closer. That one's been on a shelf a long time. But Take it off the for, shelf. Come to LA, yeah. Paul. Make your dreams happen. You can, you, but, can but, say, but, you, you can say with Patrick too. Yeah. yeah. So let me let me end me. on this. Let me end on asking the guys that are actually in LA. Yeah. <laughs> the perspective on LA today, because from Vancouver, all we see is a, like you know we're approaching election season for you guys, so mm-hmm. we we have a very specific perspective of what's going on there, and it basically looks like fucking armageddon and you know what is it like well, daily literally, like, it does look like armageddon outside right now yeah um, so we, we've got fires to be honest i mean it's, it's fine it happens a lot yeah, yeah. It, to, to your question though it's it's i grew up in los angeles so the veneer has been long lost um because i mean like I, w- I went to high school with a kid from the sixth sense and he was just like another kid in the class yeah um yeah. so it, it but uh to your to your question about like sort of how things are going here and what the boots on the gr- I mean we don't Patrick and I don't really touch the entertainment industry that much other than making this podcast which is a far cry from being on set <laughs> yeah, we're like, basically yeah. actors we're basically <laughs> actors yeah <laughs> and uh and uh yeah but there's not a whole lot of I mean it's it's sort of business as usual during a pandemic I I can't really point to anything that's uniquely uh that's that's strange or weird or out of place what about you yeah, I, I would say it hasn't changed my life too much. It makes uh, martial arts training more difficult because the only gyms that are open are like secretive and have paper covering the windows. Um, hmm. But they still cost the same price. Yeah, but as far as like the industry and stuff like that, I know that there's like, uh, I mean, a lot of comedians are leaving um, because of the stand-up comedy clubs that we're yeah. keeping them here are, I, are closed. And Yeah, you really? know what? I, I won't be able to really answer this until it, it, it's reopened and I can see what it looks like then. Um, but what about just as a citizen, like not even entertainment business? Like, can you go about your daily life or is it? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Pr- pretty, pretty similar. Uh, I mean, there's definitely limitations on things that like I uh, oftentimes I'll think of something that I want to do and then I'll have to add the additional frame of whether or not that's able, that, whether or not. That's yeah. A, can option. I do that? Can I do that? Is there <laughs> yeah. too many people, whatever that is? Um, so it's difficult because I can't get together with groups of my friends. That's probably one of the biggest frustrations, but that's happening to everybody in the world right now. So there's yeah. nothing that, are they limiting it to like groups of six? They've got their own. You can't really enforce it. Ambiguous, like, yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you've got, I don't know, we've got the, it's on fire. We've got a red sun and, uh, and power outages sometimes. And uh, so it's definitely like not a good spot in certain ways. There's a, the homeless population has exploded recently. It seems like uh, every single freeway underpass and sort of unoccupied uh, sidewalk has been taken over by tents. But that was sort of, that was already happening before the pandemic. Yeah. Do you have to wear masks everywhere? Uh, yeah, I mean, like so yeah, you're, you're spo- yeah, Mo- most people do. It's uh, it's it's interesting as people are sort of getting quote unquote over the pandemic. We're finding uh, more and more people that I see, sort of see walking on the sidewalk without them. Um, granted, if they're walking by themselves, they shouldn't have to wear a mask. But <laughs> masks, masks are definitely. I, still, still I don't when I'm alone outside, except now that there's smoke in the air. I was like, oh, I kind of want to pull this up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah. So it's hard to know whether it's a, uh, a smoke cough, oh, a yeah, smart cough, a smoke now. COVID <laughs> cough, or uh, any other any any of the other coughs we have. So, yeah. but anyway, we'll end it on a hopeful note. Things are looking up, and are uh, yeah. Hopefully, the future. Yeah, I still believe the future will be better than the present, and yeah. I have the power to make it so. Yeah. Well, that's great. So cool. yeah, Paul, thank you so much for coming on again, man. Really appreciate it. This is a, uh, I mean, your your wealth of knowledge and great insights and information. It's super well spoken, and we really really appreciate your coming on and sharing some time with us. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you again. This has been an episode of Deus Life, an aspirational podcast, and we'll see y'all next time. Peace. Cheers.